Luis, to start the recording. Here we go. I think this is going to be Kino Kingdom. It's either 19 or 20. I, I edited the last one we did a thousand years ago, and I haven't uploaded it yet. So uh -huh. I'll do it today, I promise. That, by the way, was not fun because the because the, the microphone kept cutting out so much. It was, and then you saying, Britt, I can't hear you. Um, and then me having to like, make that listenable. So some of the reviews are, are like, oh, yeah, so Terminator with Arnie. Yeah, mm, Vosloot, no. Good. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> so, um, I've got a few films. I'm not sure how many, but I'm a lot of these are going to be two minutes. Um, I will briefly mention that the films I have seen are uh, that you've seen as well. So mm. I'm not going to go through them. There was Triple Frontier, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's good. Though. Um, really, it felt really solid. Like the, yes. I was I was engaged throughout, sort of thing. Um, Ten to Midnight, Charles Bronson. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he, he, he was one-dimensional in all of his roles. He he's just this, like he's the only person that all of his films get mixed up in my head because they're all the same. Yeah, well, he plays <laughs> this... every character the same. If he's a cowboy or if he's like a modern-day detective, identical every time. <laughs> so, um, but Ted like brilliant, absolutely fine. Um, you were right as well about um, that scene you mentioned with that where uh, in one of the last podcasts we did where the the killer has like gay gay porn magazines and yeah it's yes. it, you definitely see them um so yeah he's a uh, latent homosexual um ca cargo which was good some of that was tough to watch that was that was balancing on my i was like nah this is getting a little bit a little it's bit heavy duty for me discomforting yeah that was really good and last night rupert uh, I dipped my toes into Alex Proyas Waters for the first, I don't think I've ever oh. seen one of his films. And I know that our friend Sexy Dave, you described him as an Alex Proyas apologist. Yes. Um, I watched half, and I turned it off just because I was tired and watching the rest tonight. Yeah. Half of Knowing with Nicolas Cage, whom I fancy. Okay. Yeah. His syrup of figs in that film. He has got no hair on the nape of his neck. It's like they've not just put a wig on. They've just said, "Oh, we'll just completely shave your head, so it looks like you're." It actually looks like you're completely bald underneath. It's okay. Because <laughs> um, he's a hairy man as well. It would. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. He's it got no hair sense. on the nape of his neck. And the other thing I noticed is, whilst I'm about forty-five minutes in, and I'm kind of in, enjoying it, mm. what um what I found is that there's so much green screen use in, in that film. It's, yes. it's actually distracting. There's a scene where he's outside and he's supposed to be at a barbecue with his son at the start of the film. And behind him, the green screen, the wind is howling and tree branches are bending and he is just completely still. Um, it's because they didn't want his wig to fly off. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, we want to got a bit of sticky back plastic on it. Um, <laughs> but it's ridiculous. And then the son like, says, oh, I'm going to go in the house and run. And you can just tell he's like running towards a set, or, like, you know, towards That's a screen. Amazing. It's odd, and it happens constantly. Do you know when it's like, um, I can't describe it, there's like a high definition, almost a fine outline around each person, and you yeah, think, yeah, you I know what you mean. being superimposed, so that's distracting. So yeah, and then I've got, um, the other ones I'm going to go through properly are Masquerade, Sweet Virginia, I See You, not that one, The Maddening, Mikey, Natural Enemy, um, Deceiver or Liar, depending on which region you're in, 13 Sins, Polaroid, The Guilty, I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, oh, and that's it. So it's not too bad. Right. Okay. There's a lot I haven't seen there. And Good. at least one I have. Uh, so I'm going to talk about The Village um, and Tenet. Oh. Uh, the Truman Show. What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Stir of Echoes. Parenthood. 
reality bites and i'm thinking of ending things oh nice uh-huh. oh you so like maybe that, we'll combine you? our efforts on that one um, yes that'd be good actually yeah and just to fathom out what it's about um <laughs> and if we got time then i'll do a couple more but yeah it's a bit of a truncated one isn't it so we'll yeah we'll we'll, we'll smash through oh yeah so, right. do you want to start off with the one we've both seen yeah, we could start off with that. Couldn't we jump in straight in at the deep end? Yeah. So um this is it's an interesting one because I'm thinking of ending things. This is a new Netflix production. Um so it, it's interesting to talk about it, like not knowing what you took from it at all. <laughs> and yeah. and I'm not even sure what I took from it at all. But basically on the surface it's like a a psychological existential kind of horror movie directed by Charlie Kaufman. The guy did adaptation, eternal sunshine and synecdoche, New York, um, etc. And it's based on a novel by someone called Ian Reed. It's one of these supposedly unfilmable novels once again, made into a film. Yeah. Uh, so ostensibly, ostensibly it's about a young woman and her boyfriend going to meet his weird parents in their farmhouse in the middle of a snowstorm. And there are kind of four movements to the film. There is driving to the house. There is the scene in the house. There's driving away from the house. And then there is the boyfriend's old school. Uh, So the two driving scenes are very long dialogue scenes basically about kind of Mm. developing characters um and they're quite well observed and awkward i found uh because the the, they don't really know each other that well uh and they're quite kind of intellectually competitive with each other constantly name dropping people like uh intellectuals writers and stuff um now i don't know about you Mm -hmm. but i found the best scene was where they meet the parents it's because David Thewlis is one of the best men to walk this earth through, but that's what he that's about. It is amazing. The, the scene where they meet the parents is it's terrifying how weird they are. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. And of course, it's Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who are two of the best creepy actors around anyway. But David Thewlis in particular, his expressions during the kind of dinner party scene, they're, they're really quiet. I'm actually feeling a bit chilled just thinking about it because sometimes you know she'll she's obviously come to this place to meet his parents and and the way that he she'll be telling a story and he'll just be sitting there with this weird fixed grin on his face but like it's like he's in pain or something it's so weird so odd and then you've got tony collette is more talkative and she keeps asking slightly inappropriate questions and she'll like laugh slightly too loudly or slightly too long i just thought it was a real masterclass it, it, in kind of discomfort that's yes, it. I, I, it struck me like I'm. I mean, this, this isn't what the situation is, but it struck me like aliens pretending to be people from watching yeah. people on television. So it's the kind of like caricatures of people. It's it was so odd, yeah. um, and I, I did like that. I must say, I went at the film slightly differently too because when I found it was based on a book, I think Faye was just like making a drink or whatever, and I, and I just. I was ju- I read the, the a brief synopsis of the book just to see what the so so I went in with like a framework. All oh, right, okay. So, and I think that kind of helped me piece it because like, if, if you watch the film and you watch it blank, like you said, I can imagine it's like what is happening. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. But then, 
because I had a framework in my head for it, I kind of not. I didn't know how it ended, but I was like, I could. I was like, okay, I can see how this all fits together. Um, right. What I found was, I I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it because it really stuck to its guns. And I yes. found out that it it started off sort of kooky, um, and funny, and and sort of a bit obtuse. But then as it went on, it got stranger and darker. So it's like it's kind of a yeah. film at both ends, but. <clears throat> I've, and I've had this problem before, and I know it is it's it's on purpose. But I found the dialogue so like when they were talking to each other and they were having these awkward conversations because they're clearly like not compatible people. Yeah. Um. In this situation where they're just in close proximity for such a long time, I just found it like okay, I I, I get this now. And it seemed like it was verbose for the sake of being verbose. It felt like um yeah. like they were the the. And and I think Charlie Kaufman is 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 guilty of this in in his book, which I've read reviews of as well, where it's almost like he's he wants people to know that it's the Charlie Kaufman screenplay. He wants to know people to tell people, he, oh, I'm intelligent. So yeah. I was like, okay, I I think it was about five ten minutes too long in those scenes. I thought, right, I I get the point. Yes, I know these people are having this awkward conversation, but watching people having a lengthy awkward conversation it can, can run its course, Charlie. Yeah, well, I think that well, especially when you have like. 20 or 30 minute scene at the start of them to, I can understand that to establish their their kind of incompatibility but then to basically do it again on their on the way, way home it yeah. seemed a bit much uh and it's like I kind of get it at this point it's it, it's interesting that you probably had more of an idea going into it what it was kind of about because I know that the writer uh in re- he wanted people to have their own interpretation of it which is probably good because it does seem like a film where there could be multiple interpretations uh, because in it really starts getting properly weird when they're in the house because she she suddenly sees his parents at various points in their kind of life different ages sort of like as young mother as you know dying old people basically yeah uh and we kind of come to realize that she's witnessing different versions of how, of gradually as the film goes on, we see different versions of how different people's lives turn out. Um, or at least that's what I took from it. Um, mm-hmm. So she kind of meets her boyfriend's older self in different guises, for example. And I think for me, it had, I could sort of see what they're getting at. It's something to do with the kind of overwhelming chaos of the cosmos, the idea that you can make certain life decisions which alter the course of your own life and others as well. And that huge overwhelming responsibility that comes with that to kind of eliminate all other possibilities. I mean, like, for example, if they're, they are incompatible, but what if they do try and settle down with each other? Would they end up in as kind of mad miserable people like his parents for example uh, I, I th- yeah i, I think I, um, I, I was slightly different because obviously i went in reading the book uh sorry i'm reading the synopsis of the book and what i sort of took away from it was it is uh, is it spoilery no it's not really spoilery to sort of say i uh, it, it reminded me a lot right of um the episode of red dwarf where they go into like a virtual reality world and yeah. all your wildest fantasies come true but but Rimmer can't his he had he can't even be good to himself in his own head because he's full of such self-loathing right and and, and for me what I what I, I found it as sort of almost a, like a sort of dream sequence of events of a person 
um, trying to imagine their life as as good as it can be, but it's it's the reason it's fragmented and the reason that it doesn't it's not ideal and things keep changing like this you know the plaster on davis david thewlis's head and the fact that that all these odd little things that are happening i think it's because there's there's such a kind of um broken person that they can't even imagine themselves having a good life and you're watching their thoughts play out right but 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 fail yeah that's that's, there's definitely a bleakness in it that yes that makes sense that's how i sort of went at it well yes and i think but as a film experience it's something you definitely need to be in the mood for and you definitely yes. need to surrender to it and appreciate it's probably not going to be a particularly scary horror as such you can't really even call it horror as really no. it's more kind of david it becomes very david lynchian especially towards the end with that yeah weird old person makeup and stuff uh but the performances are so good in it because the the main couple are played by Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons, uh, and of course then she's got, Irish, by the way. I, she had a yeah. perfect American accent in that film. I know she's so I good. Know. Yeah, but and yeah, I was seeing her in Beast last year. It was only a couple. Yeah, last year, year before, and that was kind of her debut. And you know, she's yeah. I think she's. I don't know, was that with um, Johnny Flynn? Yes. Oh, I need to watch that. It's all right, yeah, and she's really good. So, um, yeah, he's yeah, so, like one or two good albums. So it'd be good if he's <laughs> if he's done something good in the film industry. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I really one last quick thing was yeah. um, you were talking about um, watching, uh, going into it, being in the mood for it. Obviously, I watched it with you know, kind of having a vague understanding of how it's going to play out. So I was, I enjoyed it for that reason. But when when I Faye watched it with me, and um, she was just really intrigued as to where it was going and what's happening next. Yeah. So it, it is quite a compulsive film, but yeah, if you just, if you just think, well, I'll chuck on a sneaky, you know, slasher horror. No, <laughs> it's no, not going to do that. Really won't work. But yeah, it has a definite unpredictability that keeps it very watchable. Yeah. So yes, yeah, not perhaps for everyone. And I can understand that there'd probably be a good proportion of people who turn it off after about half an hour because they're still in the car, but talking, <laughs> But it's obviously an intelligent film and, yeah, worth it if you've got a good two and a half hours to spare. Um, do you want to go on to the next one for you? Uh, yeah, sure. I think you've got more than me, so maybe it would be an idea if you cracked on with one, even well, if it's two minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, a lot of th- I'm not going to lie to you, but a lot of these films can be described as, like, decent thrillers from the 90s and 80s. Um, so uh, Masquerade... Uh, starring Meg Tilly uh, mm. and uh, Rob Lowe. This film, and also the third star of this film, are the many salmon pink doilies that I've seen, because it's filmed in 1988, sorry, 87, released in 88. Mm. And the story is that um, Rob Lowe is sort of a, 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 a playboy that goes from woman to woman seducing them, and uh, they have affairs with him behind their husband's backs, and he scams cash out of them effectively. And then he meets Meg Tilly, and the film is then an exploration of whether he is actually in love with her or whether it's just another uh, event for him to sort of scam, get some money off and move on from. Um, it is, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for many reasons. One of them is because Meg Tilly is such a weird, weirdly childlike, innocent screen presence. Yeah, she's very elf-like, isn't she? Yeah, and her hair in that film is 
awful. It's this weird, like, fluffy bob. And there's a scene where she comes out of the shower and she's got, like, and it's, like, wet and, like, hanging. And I thought, you see, that's what it should look like. Like, straight and styled. And then, no, she dries it off. Boom. Stupid, puffy bob again. Um, <laughs> I went to school with him. Puffy um, bob. <laughs> Sounds like a Nintendo character. <laughs> You know that would be an Amiga platform where we have to collect yeah. everything that we want on the next level. Yeah, no, it, would, it wouldn't be a Nintendo character. It would be a rip-off of a Nintendo character, wouldn't it? It would be like, like, be like the Amiga version of Kirby or something. Puffy Bob. <laughs> he just sucks up trash or something. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, Rob Lowe's is he is handsome in that film. And in the sex scenes, he is sweating. His back is glistening. Um, well, so, in the 80s. Everyone's sweating <laughs> during sex in the 80s. Um, so yeah it's it's a fun like 80s or you know is it him isn't it him sort of thing but the way that the film i'm gonna just spoil this because it's it's over 20 20, i know so the the whole thing goes on is she in love with him he's and you know she, she gets pregnant a few weeks in the relationship they want she wants to get married she is minted and he and you know, people are saying, I think he's in there for the money, you know, and, and he's and she's like, no, no, he loves me. And, you know, and it is played pretty well because you, mm. it's not like Rob Lowe's this mysterious character enigmatically smoking as a silhouette in the tree line. He is just they, they're just in a relationship. So you're thinking, no, oh, I think he actually does like it. All good. So at the end, a character dies, right? Because I'm, I, I can actually do this without spoiling it. A character dies because it's all about boating. It's a very like rich film. It's a lot of sailing shots and they live in the huge house by the marina and stuff. And there is someone has tampered with a boat. They've tampered with a certain valve on the boat. And if the moment you turn ignition, the boat will explode, right? Rob Lowe knows this. So he goes down there and he, knowing that this, the boat is, is faulty and what someone's done, he goes on the boat anyway. And then he turns around and basically slips and turns ignition on with his elbow as he falls. And then the boat blows up. And I thought, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That, that is such a cheap way of just saying, oh, we have to, you know, it has to end. We have to have an explosion. So he'll just slip. Actually. And, and, um, and also then the way that uh, it sort of resolves itself to a happy ending is Meg Tilly is in this boathouse, which she's effectively grown up in for her entire life. Her entire family are into sailing. She owns boats. Everyone in the film seems to own a boat, and they're all based around this one marina. And she looks at the wall towards the end of the film and just sees a newspaper clipping that's been there, yellowed with age, obviously been there for 25 years plus, notices it for the first time, and it solves the film. Wow. And I thought, again, that is, that's two cheap tricks now yeah. within five minutes so it's a fun 80s film and they're doilies rupert they should be cast as a character they, they, well there's one <laughs> like shot a top shot where they go into a room and she's walking around and everything is just salmon pink and covered in doilies the curtains are doilies the bed has got a donut the pillows everything that it's a fire hazard the, um, the lives of the rich and famous eh? <laughs> yeah it's all about uh, the salmon pink doilies <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's it was fun. It was fun, and like the character, it's kind of sweeping and real romantic, and the 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 acting is decent in a kind of eighties way. But um, and they sound yeah, like a the, cute couple. Yeah, it's not you know, it's not like yeah, I can see that he's dodgy because every time you turn your back, he's arching an eyebrow and looking at the camera. It's just they just seem to be a young couple in love. So you know, points for that. Mm. Okay, what and that was, was that available. Rate. That was Amazon Prime uh, Masquerade, nineteen eighty-eight. Good. Okay. Um, probably we'll skip that one. I think. Um, <laughs> I'll talk about the village. 
2004. Uh, paid for this on Prime, actually. I don't think Shyamalan's films, or the good Shyamalan films, are available anywhere else. Um, so this was the last of M. Night Shyamalan's like, initial run of hits, which started with The Sixth Sense, um, before, it's just before the decline began with Lady in the Water, a couple of years later. <laughs> so I, many people disagree with you. <laughs> I still maintain that he's made far more good films than genuinely bad ones. I mean, the bad ones are Last Airbender, The Happening, and After Earth, but basically everything else he's done has at least been interesting like and watchable, even yeah. Lady in the Water. Anyway, this is the village, and the setting is this kind of Amish-style self-sufficient village. Apparently sometime in the 19th or early 20th century, um, and it stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix. He plays this young man called Lucius, who's very, very good-hearted and pure, uh, and he yearns for this uh, young woman called Ivy, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, and she's this courageous but blind tomboy who tends to speak her mind, um, whereas Lucius stays very silent, reticent. Um, and also in this strange love triangle is Noah, played by Adrian Brody. He's a young man with severe learning difficulties, and he loves Ivy too. So the context for all this is that no one leaves the village because those we do not speak of stalk the woods, apparently um, some kind of creatures dressed in red. And um, one day when Lucius is hurt, Ivy vows to leave the village and head to the mythic towns beyond the woods, um, which the elders warner of places of crime and vice. Um, and, that's when the kind of revelations begin about what's in the woods and beyond. Um, so this was an interesting piece of work, the village. It was made in 2004. Um, if you, and you've got to consider its place in relation particularly to 9-11 or September 11th, um, because you can't help but see the kind of echoes of the isolationist approach that the US adopted after the Twin Towers and the subsequent wars, obviously. So it's a story about a community struggling with the, with some kind of almighty grief, and that's why they kind of settled here. And they, the elders believe that if they can cut themselves off from the rest of the world, then they can be safe and perennially happy. But, of course, grief knows no borders. Uh, it's quite a slow film, but it is beautifully shot by uh, Roger Deakins, the best in the business, pretty much. Um, this set is basically just a field and some nice woods and stone houses. I really like the use of language, which finds uh, a nice balance between sort of ye olde and modern uh, uh, kind of lexicon. I did. I said it's slow, but it is never boring as such. I'd say every scene has a purpose. And the writing has this nice directness to it, especially when Ivy is on the screen. She's very, very direct. And and I think her romance with Lucius is is quite genuine and heartfelt. Now, this being a Shyamalan film, there are not one but two twist points in this film. The first is, have you seen this? 
Have yes, yes, that? Yeah. I'm surprised so, you haven't mentioned William Hurt yet, but carry on. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a whole host. Of, all the elders are played, but you know, you got William Hurt, you got Sigourney Weaver, you got Brendan Gleeson, good <laughs> actors. Uh, so all there, and William Hurt, the way he speaks is such a strange way of speaking. In this film, he he has this really almost staccato way of delivering his lines, and and certain lines will like run into each other in a way that doesn't sound quite natural but at the same time i think it works really well it, it gives his character a lot, of, a lot of personality anyway so yeah the twists anyway so the first twist really is a very shocking scene in the middle of the film which is very simple and very scary and i remember watching this in the cinema and there being audible gasps because it's something happens which you really truly do not ex- expect at all um and it's quite alarming now, the second twist, which is sort of the big one, if you like, is the explanation for why the village exists. And this is far more heavy handed and it does require a fair amount of explanation. And I was thinking about this and ultimately I think the decision to make a half horror, half social drama kind of necessitates an extreme turning point. And I'm not sure it really works that well to be honest, although it's mm. an interesting entering concept, actually translating it into the film is very awkward and requires a lot of pretty heavy hand exposition. I do like the ending of the film, the very ending of the film, because there's something quite sinister and almost fascist about the final scene, which was, I guess, goes back to what I was saying about, you know, the US turning in in itself after 9-11 and um, almost kind of demonising any kind of otherness, which I suppose has found its zenith with Donald Trump. But anyway, um, it is a it is a, a very intelligent and beautifully made and original film. Mm. And I hope that Shyamalan returns to this kind of mid-budget stuff, uh, mid-budget original stuff. Now he's done with his Unbreakable trilogy, I think now is the time... You know, to come back to some really original ideas like this. Have a nice idea and run with it. Yeah. As a, as a, yeah. Like I, I was a big fan of the visit, the village, the six sense ones that it, they don't, they just rely on like craft as opposed to spectacle. Yes. And so. yeah, that's the thing. I don't even mention the craft. Cause, I mean, he's such a, he's such a talented filmmaker in terms of just the shots he chooses and the, and his direction of people and and he's a good writer when he wants to be. Just he. He went off the rails for a little while there, but hopefully he's back now. Yeah, so no, no, that's uh, does next. The, um, do you know? I might. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if he's even seen that. So I'm going to make it. You've 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 made me one because I watched it when it first came out, and I think I was working away at the time and probably like in a room full of people half drunk. So I, I probably didn't take it all in. So I'm going to. Not the ideal circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and I was on a bouncy castle. No, so I, I'm going to. Yeah, watch that again. I think I've made a little note. Yeah, um, but I have to pay for it, which is unbelievable. And you paid for it on Amazon, did you say? Yes. So only his worst films are available for free. Well, I don't. I to be honest, I haven't just looked up. I mean, there may be, you know maybe one or two of his films, but it's like anything you when you get an idea into your head that you want to watch a specific film, go on Netflix and Amazon prime. Nothing, nothing. (laughs) It will be like, Oh, I fancy watching like, I don't know, die hard or something. And then it will say, Oh, we don't have die hard, but we have 
Death Wish 4, if you want to watch that, it's like, nah, not quite yeah. on the same level, I mean, is it? it? It begins with a D. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just two words. Um, so the next one I'm going to talk about is Sweet Virginia, um, which okay. is also the name of one of my favourite Rolling Stone songs. And yeah. It's it's a film set in the um, like you know the American sort of Midwest. It's it's a very much a film that's up my strata, which is a, a, a handful of characters, like in a in a in a couple of locations, just interacting with each other. Um, the film is is stars John Bernthal, whom I fancy. Mm-hmm. In uh, he's uh, a, a motel owner, and he's just a bit of a shell of a man. He's got a limp from you know sort of an unspecified injury, and he's just very. Although he's obviously like very physically fit and attractive, he's he's kind of worn out and just doesn't just you know wakes up, smokes a joint, goes to work, goes to bed sort of thing. He's just a bit mm. empty. And the film uh, starts off with um, a woman arranging for her husband to be killed um, because he's abusive, and the hit, and then she realizes that he actually gambled away all of his life insurance money, so. Everything she should have had, which is what she was looking for, the cash, goes to pay off his debts, and she's left much worse off and cannot pay the hitman uh, who she's paid to kill him. And then he says, I'm just going to kill you and your family then, quite frankly. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of who plays the hitman. And, and at the, in the same time, she's she uh, her mother. I think it's her other her. It's her can, we haven't done this podcast for a while. Basically, someone's falling in love with John Bernthal in the background mm. as well, but he's, he doesn't want to um, engage because he just feels worthless and it's it's an interesting choice i'm just going to quickly find out who plays the hitman because he was terrifying um it is christopher abbott right i don't know if you know who he is but he plays he's really weird in it because he's got this really quietly threatening persona because he's capable of such extreme violence and and yet he's he's really socially awkward and you get the impression he meets people and tries to be friendly and tries to talk himself out of causing violence but it's it's there's clearly some PTSD going on because he can't just stop imagining violence and it's and when he's having conversations Jesus. with people he's got these like little ticks and he's like as if he's hearing a voice in his head saying oh just do something buzzing go on and he's like no I just want to just want to have a coffee really. Um, I've seen so- him before, but I'm not sure where from. I just have a look at his. He's in Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is an excellent film. So yes. I'm probably seen him in that. Uh, he's in First Man. Probably seen him in that. Yeah, I know his face. He's got these almost like slightly sad eyes. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, he looks quite. He's actually really ripped in this film, but he's the way he's the costume uh, is is designed that he's he's made out to look quite sort of slight and meek and unassuming, but he's actually like really really lean, really David. Um, and so wow. it's it you've got this thing. He's like sort of slightly hunched forward and really meek, but then obviously capable of of doing and saying these horrible things. Um. I really liked it because it it was really weird to see John Bernthal completely and utterly cast against type. Um, okay. That I mean, there's a scene where I mean, we know he's such a physic he such a physical presence. And he's got such an amazingly gruff voice, and there's a scene where someone complains about like an, uh, the noise in one of the rooms, and he knocks on the door, and there's just a drunk just bigot in there basically and they have and he said oh can you can you keep the noise down and the the guy just like just tells him to fuck off basically and then just beats him up and and he's mm. think oh this, this isn't going to be one of those films where there's you know he just kind of has enough and fights back he is meek throughout bless him so it's a weird <laughs> casting choice but it's 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 well done you know it's not like they've cast arnie in the role and you're like you're massive it, 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 it does work you can go with it but yeah it just feels like a really nice small little sort of drama and i and i really got on board with it um it's a quiet film um 
but yeah, I was I was a big fan. So, so that's called that, Sweet Virginia. Sweet Virginia with John yeah. Bernthal. And Christopher yeah, I liked Abbott. It. Yeah, I might I might have to check that out then. That sounds yeah, intriguing. Really and nice. It sounds like an intriguing, yeah, cast against type thing for John Bernthal. Because of course the last thing I saw him in was that bloody awful Last Days of American Crime. That was him, wasn't it? Oh God, was he in that as well? Whoops, a daisy. So. Yeah. I would also like to say before you do your next one, I know we we don't we only talk about films. Please everyone watch the Art of Action series on YouTube with Scott Adkins. He has interviewed Cynthia Rothrock, Dolph Lundgren. This it's solid gold. It is solid gold and I can't, it's my favorite thing on television at the moment. <laughs> There's Art of Action on YouTube. What a, and I get to look at Scott Adkins who looks like Rob Brydon, which is fine. That's all you need really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Go on then. Scooting on, what have you got? It was it was not John Bernthal in um, in the Last Days of American Crime. What who was it in Last Days of American Crime then? It's you. I haven't seen the film. You're the one. You. It should be burned into your psyche of, of pure hatred, written in hatred on your soul. It's oh, that film. That film is. It's, it, it, it's not it's, John Thor, is it? No. Oh, it's Edgar Ramirez. <laughs> he looks vaguely really similar to him. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. He's got a really obnoxious face, Edgar Ramirez. So I should have remembered. Yeah. John Bolton-Bantle. He's he's a Punisher, isn't he? So that makes yes, more sense. Is. Okay. So on to Tenet then. Yes, I'm excited about this. This is uh, this was in the cinema. It's the last great hope for the revival of cinema uh, because it's the only thing in the cinema. Uh, uh-huh. It's Christopher Nolan's latest film. It's a spy film, basically, which oh, okay. involves... I know nothing about this, by the way. Right, yeah. I didn't really know much about it before going in, but it's it's a spy film which involves John David Washington of Black Klansman fame uh, and Robert Pattinson teaming up to prevent World War III um, at the hands of an evil Russian oligarch played by Kenneth Branagh. And yeah, the good guys they team up with a lady called Cat, played by Elizabeth Debicki, Debicci, I don't know, Debicki, um, uh, who is the is Kenneth Branagh's abused, trapped wife, and she can while they do all the business, uh, the action movie kind of business, she can work on him from the inside. Um, now the reason that. Kenneth Branagh's character is capable of causing World War Three, mm-hmm. is because he's an arms dealer and he has access to inverted goods. So these are guns and ordnance whose entropy has been reversed, right? Meaning they can travel backwards through time. So, for example, someone might walk into a room and they'll find an emptied gun on the floor and there'll be bullet holes everywhere. And then a fight will kick off and during the fight, the gun will be sucked into their opponent's hand and the bullet sucked into the gun um, as they kind of re- remove themselves from the wall or whatever. Right. So later on, and that's kind of, you get almost like a tutorial in how that works. And then later I was going to say, that sounds like something they'd have to be five minutes of, right, everyone listen for a sec. Yeah, basically. <laughs> the film, yeah. yeah. But later on, you get other objects, you get cars being reversed and finally you get humans being reversed. So... Now, you may be wondering how all this works in practice, how this could possibly be. I am. 
you will have to keep wondering because there are some really, really strange action scenes in this film where some people are moving forwards and some people are moving backwards in the same scene. Okay, so I I believe that truly great films bring something new to the medium. I Because when I think of the films that I love, I think are truly great films, They've each of them have always brought something new to the table, right? However, bringing something new to the medium does not in itself make a great film, if that makes sense. Just because it does something new doesn't make it great. And that is the case here. So, because the spectacle of watching time flow forward and backward mid-scene is definitely a new thing that I've not seen before. But in practice, it just comes across as a bit confusing and awkward. It's something to do with the normal cause and effect being disrupted, which is obviously the point, but it's also deeply annoying and visually cumbersome and unsatisfying. So, because, I mean, even if you think of it, right, try and think in your head, how would that work? That you've got someone throwing a punch and then someone like sucking a punch, if you see what I mean, from their face. It's it sounds weird and it looks weird. And everything you said as well is all about effects and that one thing. So is the film good around that? Well, here's the thing. So with Inception, which we both watched quite recently, okay, even if you don't fully grasp the machinations of the plot, right, in Inception then the actual set pieces themselves are enjoyable on a purely superficial level because they look cool and mm. cool stuff happens. Problem is that Tenet, in Tenet, the set pieces aren't enjoyable even after you've grasped them. And it, they're really hard to grasp as you're watching them. You may be able to grasp them afterwards, possibly, but even after you grasp them, they're not, they just don't look good. It just isn't an enjoyable effect to watch. And by the end, of course, the plot completely ties itself in knots, as Nolan's films tend to do. So in the end, you've got this huge battle scene with two armies fighting, but each is in reverse to each other. So you've got two armies wearing near identical clothing and loads of it is in darkness and it keeps swapping between forward and backward motion. Um, I was thinking, like... It's not so much visual poetry as like visual beat poetry, like random, imagine like random kind of like words just thrown out. It's like that. It's like watching Mm. that. It's not helped as well by some pretty haphazard editing. This was, I I saw it with Dave and this was his main concern, him being an editor himself. And it's really noticeable, not just in like the confusing action scenes, but also in the dialogue scenes. I mean, there are really basic continuity errors in the dialogue scenes and the way it's, the way it's cut between people during the dialogue scenes makes it really hard to follow what they're saying, not helped by an issue, which I know a lot of people have had, which is the really poor sound mixing. So actually some of the dialogue is pretty inaudible. So you've got a combination of really poor editing plus poor sound mixing at the same time. And in a film like this, where, you know, every line counts uh, in order to make sense of it, then it's a real problem. This sounds like really, these sound like really basic issues that you don't get in like mid-budget films. Well, it's, to be fair, I mean, the sound mixing thing is 
always been a problem in um, Nolan's films for some reason. Not clear why, but it is. Um, and but this is an an unusually complex plot and concept grasp. Um, and and because of that kind of exceeding complexity, um, and the plot itself, which jumps all over the world in very much James Bond style, there's very little room for character development as well, because. John David Washington is, he looks cool, but he is quite bland in the lead role. I mean, Pattinson is a bit better because at least he has a cheeky sense of humour. Clothes they wear are astonishing in this film. It's like watching, uh, it's its like one of those, you know, adverts for, uh, like a, fa- a high-end fashion advert. Like the scarves that Robert Pattinson has, the silk scarves <laughs> over like real pa- like pastel suits and stuff. Uh, anyway, um, Debicki is just a bit dull. Branner is essentially playing the same character he played in that dodgy Jack Ryan reboot from a few years back. Um, yeah, so I would say that, I mean, Nolan, his fascination with time is it's in everything he does pretty much. And he's produced some good films out of the kind of playing with time, you know, like Memento, Inception, Interstellar. But I would put Tenet in the same disappointing bracket as dunkirk uh so that's yes which is as good as huey ball's tunnel rats it is not correct (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so it it was really this was very disappointing i would say yeah that is just yeah the con the things like continuity errors and sound sound issues they they seem pretty fundamental so pretty basic it's yeah i'm shocked at that yeah well um, especially when it's just pure exposition scenes you just want it to be simple you don't want to have anything to distract you from what the characters are saying because you need is to... there a character that exists purely to explain what's going on well to its credit there isn't really but they're kind of all explaining it to each other if you see what i mean <laughs> so because i mean it gets so complicated towards the end when they start kind of they essentially get to a point where they are traveling back through time and and kind of seeing themselves on the way back through if you see what i mean so it's Obviously, the the title itself is a palindrome, and, it, and the film has an almost palindromic structure to it. So I can see what he's getting at, and that's all fine. And I'm, I'm, it probably is an intelligent film, uh, a complex film. As a spectacle to watch on the screen, though, I just think it just looks bad. I just think it just doesn't translate well to the screen. I'm going to have to watch this. I'm gonna, like this seems like a this seems like a weird mess and yeah I mean I know you, neither of us are huge fans of Chris Nolan but his films usually have something there's like a quality a quality to them and this just seems from what you're saying it just seems like badly realized and somewhat unfinished <laughs> so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm it does feel a bit like that it feels like a very minor film I mean even despite all the kind of the big budget stuff it feels like it will kind of be a bit swept aside, a bit forgotten, you know, it'll be bracketed with like stuff like insomnia and things like that. And just how, like, yeah, how just long is it? Is it a long film? Only two and a half hours. <laughs> of course it is. So apparently one of his shortest. <laughs> Bloody hell. I know. But um, yeah, I, I, even then though, because of its complexity and its scale, it almost feels like there needed to be more because there needs to be more time to develop the characters, for example, because he's, you know, John David Washington is so wasted in the main role. 
it's a pity, really. Yeah. Here you go. Oh, well, I will seamlessly move on from that, if, mm-hmm. if that's cool. If you're, yep. to, I, I see you, not that one. This is a film that uh, stars uh, Helen Hunt uh, as, as a mother, and she looks slightly less unusual in this film than the other one I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. She doesn't look, She must have had some makeup on in that film. It was very bizarre. Um, the Mike <laughs> Clark, that was. So, yeah, this is um, I See You, and this is a film starring Helen Hunt, and she's... Uh, just had an affair which we we're not party to but she's had an affair and she's living with a uh, teenage son and her husband and obviously this affair uh, that's been discovered and has been outed she's trying to weirdly move on as if nothing's happened uh, and her, her husband is really emotionally distant and get the impression he's only with her to try and keep the family life normal for their son her son is hostile towards her <laughs> he uh, does not like the fact that she pulled her knickers down um, so it's, it starts off like this, and then these they start noticing these odd things around the house. So you've got this backdrop of this the family tension of this affair, um, and which is amazing, by the way. There's like a dinner scene in it where you know the husband's just eating, clearly just they eat gone, and and then she sort of he walks off after he's eating this food, and Helen Hunt like looks at his son and rolls mm. her eyes as if like, oh, oh, what's wrong with him? And his son just says, "You stupid." cow <laughs> just that's a massive go at her and she's like sort of as acting as if oh you don't know about this again are you it's like it's a recent affair helen okay deal with it better and so the, uh, whilst this is going on for the first sort of 30 minutes or so odd things are happening in the house like she she opens a cutlery drawer and there's just nothing in it and then she says to her son if you if you moved all the cutlery somewhere and he's like no and then she's oh, fair enough slams the door shut and like um pl- like she, her mug has gone missing uh her favorite mug and she notices it's on the roof um and it falls off and it's someone in the head later on and she's convinced his son's done it and he's like no i haven't so it's all a bit like oh is it supernatural is is it something to do with your affairs? is something in the background is someone's you know like sort of doing these things well i want because this is obviously a film that's about four seconds old i can't i can't do the spoiler but about 40 minutes into the film it kind of reveals its hand to the viewer and it's an interesting it's interesting but then what it does is it spends like 20 minutes just showing us the what we've seen from a slightly different point of view and mm. you think this could be truncated all this this section of the film is doing just needs to tell me oh this is what's going on so now you're going to see it from this perspective but what it actually does is just says i remember that this is what happened and it goes through loads of scenes and it's like i, I know i've seen these i i don't and it really feels like it's just like the reveal was its kind of trump card and then when that's done it very much just plays out in a really generic way right um so it's like an interesting it's interesting up to a point and some of the characters in it are really good there's um i'm not sure that the, the actor's name that plays a, a key role uh, and he is really full-on but it's it's just when that reveal happens it just sort of plays out in a really typical way and then it throws in a preposterous twist at the end and you think right okay like i was interested then i was just on board now i feel a little bit cheated because that's ridiculous so so it's a um, cheating twist it's not so much a cheating twist it's cheap more than anything else okay it just sort of says oh you thought this was just gonna be a generic little thriller but what about this and you think yeah no i would have rather it's just a generic thriller yeah uh so that was i see you i mean i like a good generic thriller but is that is i see you is that stylized that title in any way 
It's no, it's just because I know that um, the, 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 what's it called? Detox is yeah. ICU. But no, this is just ICU. So right. it's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's just nice to see Helen Hunt out and about. Um, yeah, 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 I can't, I have no idea what she looks like now because literally I've not seen anything since, of her since. Yeah. Women want? <laughs> since Twister. No, since probably the sessions, which was a good 10 years ago at least, I'd say. Did that star John Sessions? If only. If it was just, if it was just like a like a comedy docudrama about his day to day life, the Sessions. <laughs> I love that. She uh, that must have been quite a while back. Because how old is she now? She must 57. be seven. Right, so she's almost six. Yeah, I mean, she played a sex therapist in the Sessions. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, anyway. But and so yeah, she probably would have been in her mid forties or something when she did that. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. Um, I'd be interested to see what she looks like now because she was she was always a she's she's a good actor in her own way. She had a very kind of down to earth kind of quality to her. I can't ever yeah, imagine her being particularly sort of, intense. No, she's like a like very approachable yeah. sort of woman next door thing. Yeah, no, she's cool. It's, it is cool. Um, so yeah, it's like I say, it's fine. It's it's an interesting film, but it just kind of stumbles at the last hurdle, really. As so many of them do. <laughs> um, right. Then where so where's that available? Oh, that's very much on Amazon Prime, I think. <laughs> Solidly on Amazon Prime. Nailed to Amazon Prime. <laughs> also on Amazon Prime is the Truman Show, which is made in 1998. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a handful of filmmakers who whose most mainstream hit is also their best film, because you can also see David Cronenberg with The Fly. And also Bernard Rose with Candyman. Sometimes, you know, the most mainstream film is their best as well. Same here with this is this is a very talented Australian director, Peter Weir, uh, who made Picnic at Hanging Rock, Witness, the one about the Amish community, with Harrison Ford building houses, Uh, (laughs) Dead Poet Society, Mosquito Coast, Master and Commander. So it's not a bad filmography, really. But... uh, yeah, this is the best of the bunch, I think. It stars... I'm surprised by how few younger people know about this film. It's weird, because my uh, stepsister... Um, sister-in-law? What's it called? Yeah, sister-in-law. Um, she, she'd she never heard of it, and none of her friends had ever heard of it. So it's good. I, we're, I'm spreading the word about the true. It, it was... I, this film was huge. I know. And it, this... It, this came up when I worked in a video store and it was constantly being rented out. Like it, even everyone... like a, a psychological, uh, like a mental condition named after this, where uh, the sufferer believes that they're in a TV show and they're being watched all the time. That's how much it's embedded in the culture. So oh, well. it stars Jim Carrey as Truman Burbank. He's a young man who doesn't realize that his entire life is a TV show and there's hidden cameras everywhere. Uh, all his friends and family are actors, and the whole world is watching him, basically, without him knowing. He meets a young woman who tries to warn him about all this. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it it puts a seed in his mind anyway. So gradually, as he becomes sick of his wife and his boring suburban life uh, in this sort of made-up town. Who plays his wife? Sorry, I've got an image in my head. Laura Linney. Thank you. Really yes, good. Sorry. Because she's very like wholesome, you know, big cheek kind of like constantly smiling, bit creepy, step for wise type. Um, 
Yes. Uh, and so he starts having suspicions about the kind of veracity of the world around him. Um, the Mainly clear... because because every time he does anything, a northern voiceover goes, they too in, in Truman Show House, talking <laughs> on bog with Dirty Magazine. That's a pretty good impression of Ed Harris, actually. <laughs> I don't know why he chose to adopt a thick Lancashire accent. Yeah, you go. he did it at The Rock as well, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's like Ed. Can you? You could probably just use your native accent if you're going to be playing like a because you're an American military. <laughs> no, oh no, well, none of that. Come over here, grommet. Um, so Ed Harris is in this film. And he, he plays a beret-wearing guy called Christoph. He he created the show, and he devised a whole backstory involving the death of Truman's father at sea, which means that Truman is too scared to get off the island. So anyway, the, what I love is that the level of detail in, in this film is so great that you notice something different every time. For example, um, this time around, I, I noticed that when Truman was preparing food, there were like... Um, there's a bottle of vitamin D pills next to it because, of course, because he lives in this giant dome, there's no real sunlight. So he needs vitamin D in order. He's constantly he's just feeding himself on vitamin D without realizing why he's doing it. Um, and also the reason you remember, he says um, his kind of catchphrase, if you like, to his neighbors, he, he says, good morning. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening and good night. And mm-hmm. That's his kind of catchphrase. And I realise it's because the show is, of course, transmitting across the globe, therefore across different time zones. So he's literally saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening or good night to different people. So it's quite a cool little, it's just like little details like that. Mm. And, you know, just playing spot the hidden camera is a game in itself for this film. So this was the first Jim Carrey film. This is 98. So this is the first Jim Carrey film where he really pushed outside his zany slapstick comfort. comedy, yeah. Yeah. And he is actually perfectly cast because he's actually a really subtle performer. Uh, and it reminds me of, um, I think I mentioned this re- on a recent podcast, R- Robin Williams had the same thing where he can very slightly and subtly shape his body to convey different emotions, like a slight hunch of the shoulders or something like that, uh, and really, really convey something quite, quite subtly. Or he can go out kind of all out slapstick. So, and I think that the film's, balance between comedy and really deeply sinister kind of horror is virtually perfect and there's a really lovely score by philip glass um and the film doesn't just hold up it actually seems weirdly prescient of the kind of narcissistic 24-hour reality tv culture that would start becoming commonplace in the a few years later yeah. yeah And with the spread of the internet and social media, because of course this has got nothing to do with the internet and social media, it's all to do with TV, but it's essentially the same thing. And what's interesting to reflect upon is the idea that the idea of someone's entire life being streamed 24 hours a day doesn't seem so crazy now. And I guess the only difference is, is that nowadays it would probably be desirable to a lot of people, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a great film and very funny and fast and clever and because of that kind of level of detail it's endlessly rewatchable yeah i i remember i've only ever seen this film once and i remember really really liking it and I, again i would have been like in my teens probably watched it 
on VHS whilst I was working in the video store. So back and forth, probably didn't take it all in. But I remember what I took away from it was just it was it, it felt like it had a real heart to it. Yes. Um I remember it it having an actual emotional impact on me. And it's probably one I would would watch again. Oh yeah, it definitely it's a very easy watch as well. You know, it's not too heavy. And I think that's you can imagine a version of it which was just pure creepy horror. But the decision to make it a pretty broad comedy as well is very much genius, really. So, yeah. So all the whiffersnappers out there. All yeah, the Gen the, Z or whatever you're called. Just watch the Truman Show yeah. on, on loop for 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, that's ironic. Um, yeah. I On the subject of you talking about the subtlety... Uh, conveyance of emotions of conveying of emotions through you know just gentle body movements and yeah and just a shift in in vocal tone and stuff yeah. i watched the maddening starring burt reynolds and <laughs> those same Known things for his subtlety cannot be applied uh, to that film this so this is a film i think it's mid 90s um where starring burt reynolds oh, that man in this film it's about a woman who's traveling cross country with her daughter and she stops at a garage uh, on the way and Bert Reynolds who is in the whole film wearing a, like a, he's got his thick gel dyed jet black hair a, like a slight paunch but with a with a de- a black denim shirt open open almost to the waist mm-hmm. and then massive black cowboy boots and tight jeans he may as well have spurs on as well and a big like cow horn on his belt and he's constantly banging back cigars and he plays basically a creepy dad. So he rocks up. He is, I'm just going to say that he's miscast, but quite frankly. So he, <laughs> he, she says, oh yeah, we're just driving from here to here. And he's like, oh, why don't you just take a really dodgy dirt road? How about that? And she says, yeah, okay. So he has a fiddle with her engine. She drives down this dirt road and the car just collapses and he comes along right. and says, oh, I tried to fix it. It's, a, it's obviously worse than I thought. And do you want to jump in? Will I take you to my creepy abandoned farmhouse? And she's like, mm. yep, sign me up. So when she gets to this house, this is within the first 10, 15 minutes, his wife is dealing with some loss of, a, of, of her sister and her child, and she's losing her mind. He makes out that he, uh, she's just, just sort of got early onset dementia, but there's obviously much more to it than that. And they end up keeping the wife and her daughter there as kind of surrogate children, uh, mm. surrogate family, and locking her in a room. But it's so theatrical. The 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 woman who who plays the his wife, who's sort of losing her mind. It's fun to watch because it's so over the top. And but Burt Reynolds just I, I don't even know if he can act. I don't because he's just smoking cigars and just sort of like just being slightly odd. And you think, I don't think you're doing the right things. You know, he's he's always just like hanging around smoking, just talking. The direct, you can imagine the director just saying to him between shots, like, I don't think you're doing the right things here, but yeah, because you're just these are not the things I want you to do. I don't think you can <laughs> act, to be honest. I mean, have you ever seen a film where you thought, oh, Burt Reynolds is pretty good now? I, I've but seen, I've only ever seen him a handful of films, and one of them was, was Striptease with Demi yes. Moore. And I remember him, the Barcelona. I remember him being funny in it, and I remember him being funny in Boogie Nights. But I don't know if he's good. Like in this film, oh, it's just... and, and those films are almost like kind of riffing off his old smoking a bandit type persona, aren't they? Really, the all-American misogynistic man. 
Um, yeah, it was. Yeah. It's odd, odd, odd. But yeah, so the the film goes on, and then the husband tries to find out where where they are, and it, the film is just filled with irritating people. Um, like the husband's irritating when he's looking for them, and he bumps into a load of irritating people while he's trying to find it, and it's this weird mixture of like dark and zany, and nothing ever really works. Mm. Um, uh, it is this funny though because the the best part of the film for me was I forgot the actor's name. But he's an uh, old, cranky, kind of looks like Burgess Meredith, kind of New Yorker. Mm. Yeah, God damn it. You know, what would like that? And this, he keeps on having visions of his father. And, of course, he's walking around smoking, you know, trying to be enigmatic and mysterious. And he keeps on having visions of his father in this wheelchair. And it'll be like him puffing out some massive cigar smoke, like, near his shed or something. And then he'll, like, look across, and his father being in a wheelchair just going, No, you never get piece of shit! You never And, and, he, and he's like, oh, I, I had that... So that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, yeah, but it's just it's I I don't think it's meant to be funny, but I found no. it hilarious. So um, yeah, uh, I can do Burgess from Reddit. I'm available for you know if you want to come to like a kids party and shout your nothing at your children in that accent, that's fine. Um, um, <laughs> Deliverance. That's a film where Burt Reynolds is quite good. Oh really? Again, that's one I haven't seen. It's one of the quite big good, ones. but not as good as um, John, John Boyd. Boyd. Yeah. Uh, or indeed, pretty... indeed Ned Beatty. So he's like, he's quite good in it, but still not as good as two of the other actors. Should we spend the next hour talking about John Voight's personal politics? I don't think that would be <laughs> it. That's a rabbit hole. I don't want to go down. So to to sum yeah to sum it up, The Maddening is a fun film. It's a fun, stupid '90s thriller. Um, but it's not it's not good. It's no. just ridiculous. It's wonderfully over the top, though. So it is, you know, it, it would be a, a good double bill with um, the what was the one I mentioned a couple of weeks ago? Uh, Hide and seek right. with um, Daryl Hannah. It's that kind of thing. It's wonderfully over the top. So yeah, might, no as, well, might as well throw in Hyder in the house while you're about it. That's on Prime. That film, my God, that film. I could write essays on that film. We need to watch that soon. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about what's eating Gilbert Grape. No question mark. It is what's eating Gilbert Grape. So it's it's not what's eating Gilbert Grape. It's what's eating Gilbert Grape. So this is what's eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah, and a, a uh, challenge for the people at home to try and say what with a, with a question mark, uh, sorry, an exclamation mark instead of a question mark, like the shopping yeah. cart. It's amazing. <laughs> what a game. Um, 1993. This was the breakout film for Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, it was just before Basketball Diaries. I was going to say it was Basketball Diaries. It's before but, that, is it? Yeah, it's, uh, I think that was a couple of years later. But that, that started the real surge. But this was, this kind of showed his talent before that. The setting is a rural town in Iowa. And Leonardo DiCaprio plays Arnie Grape, a teenager with severe learning difficulties. His main carer is his older brother, Gilbert, uh, who's played by Johnny Depp. And there are also two sisters looking after the house and their morbidly obese mother, she, the mother, has collapsed into a kind of perennial depression after the suicide of her husband. Cheery stuff. Um, mm. There isn't really that much plot to speak of. Uh, basically, one day a caravan breaks down near the great property, property and it contains a young teenager called Becky, played by Juliette Lewis, with whom Gilbert falls in love. And he goes from being kind of 24-hour carer um to well kind of a regular young man really with regular interests i.e girls um 
And he, finding the balance between the two causes all kinds of heartache and drama. At its best, the film is kind of reminiscent of the best of early 90s indie cinema, the kind of aimless but intelligent character-driven dramas you'd see by Gus Van Sant or Steven Soderbergh. But it's also got this very, very sentimental and pretty predictable streak in it. The director is Lasse Hallstrom. He went yeah he he does a lot of middling drama films like the cider house rules and the shipping news Um, even the titles yeah uh so leonardo DiCaprio picked up the plaudits at the time and he was actually nominated for a golden globe and an oscar for this and it is an amazingly convincing performance it's full of like kind of believable critics but also this underlying humanity i'd say also i i used to find johnny depp boring in this film but i think he is actually pretty good Because I think the role is a lot harder. He's playing someone whose emotions are really powerfully repressed, um, and which could be very boring in the hands of another actor. But he's actually pretty good. Um, uh, yeah, as I said, like it, it is pretty predictable. The final half hour is just cavalcade of tearjerker moments, which just become a bit wearying after a while. But if you're feeling vulnerable and in need of a good cry, then this is a movie which is laser targeted um, at doing that specific job. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's well made, very well acted, but yeah, a bit sentimental and a bit predictable. It's a film I'll never watch. Love that song. Did Burt Reynolds uh, sing that? <laughs> no, it was actually a bit by crack. Um, <laughs> uh, Mikey, it's a film from 1992. Um, I watched two films, weirdly. I mean, I know we're going to have to split this podcast into two parts. We've only got a half hour left for today. But um, I'll, I'll do these two together because okay. they're very much the same thing. So I watched uh, a film called Natural Enemy and a film called Mikey, uh, both that dealt with adoption. So Mikey is a horror film, an out-and-out child horror from 1992 about a child who gets uh, adopted into families and then murders them and moves on. That mm-hmm. is it. That is the film. Um, it, 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 it feels weirdly nasty because um, you, you, you know when you, when you watch a film, I don't know, like The Omen or something where there's a child in it, and usually mm-hmm. there's a supernatural element, you know, they're the, the son of, I don't know, Satan, or there's something fundamentally wrong and you know, kooky going on in the background. This just feels really weirdly exploitative because it's just, it's just like the boy's only crime seems to be that he's just adopted. It never explains his original family. And he mm. kills the, the, the families in really horrible ways. Like he'll snap a cat's neck and then he'll like, like harshly he's only about eight as well harshly like drown his younger sister electrocute his mother and stuff or like impale people with glass and he watches videotapes of it as well he films himself doing it and watches it and then he so the film Jesus. takes place and he, yeah it just seems nasty uh, <laughs> which is a strange thing to say about horror but it's the 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 main thrust of the film is like oh look at him he's adopted oh look how horrible he is look yeah. at the stuff he's capable of you don't know For what no, you're gonna get when you get one of them eh yeah, you look at the for no real explain. Oh, look at what he's doing now, and it just feels really lurid. And I just thought this just feels slightly unpleasant and very one track as well. Um, and it goes completely the way you think it's going to go. Like the yeah. film is just every beat. You know exactly what's going to happen. Um, <clears throat> and is, yeah, and um, there is a, yeah. Go on. 
Oh no, the last thing is another thing which is just uh, like another sort of layer of unpleasantness is he's obviously like eight or nine and he yeah. just really lusts after this like 15 year old girl who is really sexualized as well. So mm-hmm. you're, you're like, this is just odd. Like he should have kills her boyfriend and he's like watching her and you think he's eight. Like this is, if the, if he was 17, maybe this would be more a comfortable watch, but it just feels horrible. That's weird. Yeah, I, I was going to say that it, there's a film well, and a book called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oh, yeah. Which is... Uh, that Tilda about, Swinton. With Tilda Swinton, and she plays mother to this child, not adopted, natural child, but, like, and it, and it charts, like, him from a, a baby into young adulthood and how, even as a baby, he seems deliberately cruel and he's not just an annoying baby, he's actually possibly evil and there is something quite creepy about the concept of it being not supernatural at all and actually just an evil child like yeah so there is something about that which can be creepy so it can be done but from yeah, the sounds and, and of I it imagine that is not this how is, you do it no it's just taking all the worst the wor- and and moving on really quickly because i can do this super fast natural mm. enemies is a film um, from I think it's like '97, starring Donald Sutherland, uh, and he, obviously, who I love, and he plays the again. It's about adoption. It's it's about it's a it's a it's a completely throwaway thriller, obviously, because mm. I watched it, and it's it. He is sort of um, it runs this business, which is it's, it's he's obviously very wealthy and successful, but the business is is very uh, it's in a sort of precarious state. And he has a, a loving wife, and he has this young protege. Pardon me. He's obviously in his fifties, and they've they um they adopted a child about 10, 15 years ago, and now they've got this young man working for Donald Sutherland, who sort of is too sort of too good, you know, like handsome and really successful. Help really saves Donald um, Donald Sutherland's company, and he sort of ingrained into their household. Mm. Now the film, it, there's a scene in this film, right, where they're having dinner. They, Donald Sutherland says, "Oh, you know, you're having a bit of a hard time. Come and live with me. You know, you've done so much for me. I'll help you out." And they're having a meal, and his wife basically says, "Oh, I, I, I gave up a baby for adoption 25 years ago. Yes, yeah, so it's haunted me ever since." And then he looks at her and says, "I'm 25," and and they don't put together. That all these weird things, all these awful things happening to them, is that, could it be that he's gaining some sort of revenge for anything? Um, <laughs> the fact that he seems to know all these deep things about your personal life and you never question it. Uh, and it just, it, he just, it's one of those films where, the, you know, the, the killer who is the young man, and you, you know this from the start, it's so obvious that he's the culprit in everything that's happening. He's the only person who has access uh, uh, to do all these things that are going on around the house and with the family. And no one pieces it together. And then at the end of the film, he just completely goes bonkers just for the sake of it being the end of the film. And just, it gets ridiculous. Mm. And even worse, so this is a totally throwaway 90s thriller. And when it finishes, it comes up with this really misplaced sort of title card that's got all this information about um, (laughs) adoptees who never never get the chance because apparently in some american states you can't find out who your birth parents are it's like locked off in some states right it says some some weird statistic at the end of this like really stupid film that says oh actually 90 percent of 
children who are adopted who never get to find out their birth mothers turn out to be serial killers and rapists. <laughs> uh, and uh, what? what? Um, or it, it says something like, you know, have have problems in and out of jail, and you're like, what? That is not really? the place for that in this film. It's not that your place to say that. Yeah, um, such a throwaway, just yeah, disposable movie, making such a serious point at the end. Yeah, it was it was ridiculous. So, yeah, two films about adoption, both crap. I I would say at least Natural Enemy. If you stop it before the credits roll at the end, at least it's just like an enjoyable romp. Donald yeah. Sutherland's really ami- wonderfully amiable in it as well. He's so yeah. he's such a positive Percy, but Mikey is just an unpleasant, nasty. Well, that's film. nice to see Donald Sutherland because he can be quite typecast as someone a bit creepy or evil especially these days and yeah so it's nice to see him be you know jovial at least yeah no he's he's really he's so amiable and his wife's obviously like sort of thinking is this is all really ropey and our lives are completely in turmoil he's like no come on let's have a cup of tea but then he's he's really like amiable in it and lovely i these sound like films that are on prime Rupert, it is like you can read my mind and see my notes. Yes, it is. Read, read your mind and see your notes. So, like, I could <laughs> just look at your notes, but instead, I hang on, I'll just read your mind instead. It'll be much easier. Rather than leaning over your shoulder. Terrible writing, Brit, so I'll just read your mind if that's okay. <laughs> um, could you be left in no doubt, would you, if you could read minds and read notes? Um, right. <laughs> If you could claim that you could read people's minds, but they also had to have it written down as well, what they were thinking. <laughs> yeah. Look at them, and then, and then look at the paper and go, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, right, anyway. So, uh, also on Prime is Stir of Echoes. Uh, this is a... This is based on a Richard Matheson uh, novel. Uh, I Am Legend, I think he did as well. Uh, it was released the same year as Sixth Sense. Late 90s, must be 98, 99, 99. Um, And it has similar elements to Sixth Sense, i.e. a kid and a dad who can communicate with the dead and the dead want an unsolved murder to be uncovered. Now, the problem is it's just not as good as Sixth Sense. Uh, That, I mean, Sixth Sense felt like a real cinematic moment. This just feels like an above average straight to video film, really. Uh, It doesn't have the tension, subtlety or emotional weight of Sixth Sense. Kevin Bacon plays the father and he's pretty good. Uh, It does do that old thing we've talked about before, the old forced drama thing uh, of him not clearly explaining what he's experiencing to his wife. Uh, She's ridiculously patient with him and he could just say to her, explain to her, look, I've been having these weird dreams and this is what I've seen. This is why it, like I'm digging up the garden is because I've had this, I've seen it in a dream. Like I know she'd still think, Oh, that's pretty mad in itself, but at least then it would be some clarification rather than him just digging it up and saying, I've got to do this anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and, and also, the thing is, the, the, there's no reason for him not to explain things to his wife, because his wife is actually pretty understanding. And she, because the whole thing is, is that he gets hypnotized quite early on in the film. And that's when, and she sees it happen. And so she knows it's real. You know, like, he has like a, a kind of dream sequence where he sees some freaky stuff, like fragments of this crime, this unsolved crime. And when he wakes up, 
he realizes that you know his his wife has watched him go into this like weird trance and stuff so she's clearly on board and um, it's not a, i've seen this film and it, the thing is it's not a race against time film no. so he, he could just explain things yeah there's really no reason for it. anyway so that you got that forced drama thing which doesn't need to be there anyway uh also i'm i'm not sure why the son character is in this film at all because the father develops exactly the same powers as the son anyway and he and the son really doesn't do anything i mean all he does is near the start he says he starts he says some weird stuff as if he's talking to a ghost basically but it doesn't you could have just not bothered with that and just have kevin bacon being hypnotized yeah so uh, that was a bit weird I, I i suppose it's i guess in a way the son is there to get the wife on side with the whole psychic ghost connection thing but he doesn't push the story along at all um yeah the film is not scary on any level, but it is reasonably intriguing for the most part. Uh, it does slip into the pretty familiar schlock territory towards the end. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I'd say it's a solid movie elevated by an engaging performance from Kevin Bacon, really. Yeah, I would, I would literally say those same words in that order about the film. <laughs> So yeah, I, I've seen it a couple of times over the years, and it's just—it's one of those. Oh, I'll check it on. Yeah, it's it's very undemanding, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It feels that you know when you watch like a horror movie, and it feels like it's made by someone who doesn't really care much for horror movies. Like it doesn't really want to be a horror movie. <laughs> Almost, it doesn't. It doesn't really work as a horror movie. It's more of a kind of mystery thriller, I suppose. Um. Yes, so but it's all right. It's an easy ninety minutes. Uh, I watched a film called Liar, or I think it's also in some territories known as Deceiver. I love the Roth. difference in those titles, by the way. Like one's a, <laughs> and one's an outright liar, and one's just nah, he's just a bit deceiving. He just yeah, he's, he's it's just, quite a different just meaning, really, isn't it? Beats around the bush. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna say some words to you now, right? Okay. Roth, Rooker, Pen. Chris, not Sean. 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so, this film, this film, when it started, I thought, have I, have I put on under suspicion again with Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman? Because it's a film that's uh, they they bring in. It's Michael Rooker and Chris Penn bring in Tim Roth because they just want him to go over a statement he's made, hook him up to a lie detector, and just clarify some stuff. It is effectively under suspicion a couple of years before. So I thought, oh, I love this, you know, a little high concept, set in a room, some high-quality actors, Michael Rooker grunting, perfect. Now, what made this film irritating is that I don't know who the director is, I didn't make it in my notes, because this was a bit of a rushed podcast, I do apologise. Um, the director obviously seen some films by quentin tarantino and some of the cuts are so infuriating mm. and what what should be a very like close-knit like them trying to work out things in his alibi and you know things he's saying and how he's playing them are they playing him kind of thing are they just trying to get someone done for this murder or has he actually done it all of these interesting things are just thrown out for the sake of arty camera angles long boring monologues Cutaways to him talking to a prostitute uh, played by a really young, um, oh, uh, who played uh, Renee Zellweger. Yeah. Um, 
just having boring existentialist conversations and you think oh. just so decent and he, it, the the scenes will be like they'll ask him a question and then he'll lean back in his chair and then like bars will shine on his face and the camera will pan down and he'll be looking out of a window somewhere else you think just stop doing this stop trying to be arty and it's it just <laughs> make it a very straight stripped down film which is what it clearly needs to be where the my interest in this film is in the interaction between the actors. It is not you doing some smoky cutaway cleverly to him talking through some way glass to a prostitute for ages. Um, I I got just infuriated with it. And there's also a portrayal of frontal lobe seizures in this film mm-hmm. and what people are capable of during them and how they act whilst in the in the sort of grip of one that I questioned. I am not a doctor, but I thought, eh, I don't know. Michael Parks is in this film briefly, and it's always good mm. to see him. Um, there's a brilliant scene as well where Tim Roth rocks up with a VHS because it's 1997, good, and says, "Oh, maybe they'll be interested in watching this." And he, on this TV that's in this in the interview room they're in for the, pretty much the whole film, he puts on a VHS of Michael. TV Rocker. was built in VHS. <sighs> separate, separate, wow. unfortunately, um, but it's a good 21 inches. Must have sent them back a few quid, um, and it's. They put it in the VHS in, and it's instantly right from the start. It's so funny because you've got Chris Penn and Michael Rooker as the detectives, Tim Roth as this guy they're interrogating. Tim Roth comes in and says, "Oh, before we do anything, I'm just going to pop this on," and it's just Michael Rooker clearly having an affair in a really creepy way with a prostitute that he's like making her pretend she's his wife and having like really normal familial conversations and then suddenly getting really rough with her. And that's like his fetish, like we're treating like a whore, like he wishes he could treat his wife. So it's obviously, and he is a policeman, right? He is not under any, he's just the the interview and and he's guesting as well. He's helping out Chris Ben. So Tim Roth puts this illegally obtained tape on of him visiting prostitutes. And after you watch about 10, 15, minutes of this of him like having this like really sort of rough sex obviously bringing out his kooks and ki- after about 15 minutes he just says i'll oh, turn this off and I said, <laughs> you would have just turned it off straight away and said where did you get that right the now second, you're really the second the you second, you're like, where did you get that and why have you do- why are you in like <laughs> he watches the whole thing and then says right turn it off as the tape finishes anyway um <laughs> so that made me laugh yeah, as um, tim roth pressed stop and rewind yeah, he's like, don't don't play that again. Once is enough, <laughs> okay. And plus, I'm out of popcorn. So yeah, it's um, it's just an irritating film. But if mm. it was made in a more stripped back, straight way, I could cope with it. But it's so busy. Funnily enough, it's the same thing that bothered me about Under Suspicion was yeah. the fact that when they talk, when they talked through their alibis, it acted as if they were there talking in the dream. Mm. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And this does a similar thing, and I just thought, oh, it's almost like they they they're thinking right this film is going to be boring because it's just three men in a room we'll just have to like spice it up somehow i know how by pissing Brit off so yeah it just it's very much a double bill with under suspicion but it's a lesser film because it's got pretensions of it being above its station jeez that's got to be on prime as well <laughs> how dare you <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure i can't remember i think it, might, it probably is yeah yeah but that's that's liar but it's also known as deceiver so right okay uh i'll we're yeah we're doing right for time we're uh, i'll go i'll move on to reality bites because i really want to talk about this one okay this was made in 1994 it was ben stiller's directorial debut um it is the absolute distillation of mid-90s culture it's got like slacker tropes it's got uh anarchy tv career anxieties uh 
it uh, references indie filmmaking and it's got this sort of grunge uh, soundtrack surely yes obviously naturally uh, and it's got this anti-sellout response to rampant 80s consumerism uh now i've spoken before about that early 90s indie movie boom you know you've got gilbert grape you've got my own private idaho clark's empire records uh (laughs) and this does fit into that category although it is a bit slicker than the likes of kevin smith or gus van sant um Oh, by the way, do you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was an indie movie as well, by the way? For a while, really? it was the most successful independent film ever made. Oh, well, I didn't know that. I just assumed it was a big budget thing. Yeah, you just think, <laughs> you think it just, it's got to be a studio film. Anyway, well, very different to that, obviously. It's about four graduates who are looking for meaning and money. And the main ones are Leilana, who's played by Winona Ryder, and Troy, played by Ethan Hawke. Leilana is making a documentary on like a camcorder naturally about the lives of young people. So it's a lot of, you know, young people talking to camera about the meaning of life. Um, So she's doing something, but Troy is a real proper slacker. He's intelligent and urbane, but also sarcastic and mean and lazy. So Leilana meets a guy called Michael, who's played by Ben Stiller. And he's kind of got, He's got a suit, swept back hair. He's a successful and sensitive TV producer who <clears throat> wants to get her documentary onto TV. Of course, it's too early for YouTube, so poor Leilana is having to get it onto TV somehow. She's stuck with Daily Motion and Vimeo, yeah. <laughs> she sleeps with Michael, but she's constantly drawn back to Troy, the slacker. Michael has ambitions to own his uh, a nice house, Whereas Troy, the Ethan Hawke character, believes that real work is for losers and all you need is five bucks for coffee and conversation. And you evidently never need to wash your hair. Um, You can almost guess the main problem with this film because it is baffling why Leilana would want to have anything to do with Troy, the Ethan Hawke character. He is charmless. He is aggressive. He's manipulative. I mean, for example, he waits until she's emotionally broken before trying it on with her. And now Michael, the Ben Stiller character, he dresses like a yuppie, yes, but he's essentially a decent person and he's doing his best to make her happy and he takes responsibility when he makes an honest mistake. So I I can't quite put my finger on why it is that there is any kind of debate here, why she would be so, like, torn between these two people because... Ethan Hawke's character is so unattractive, it's unbelievable. You know, and Ethan Hawke's a good-looking guy, so there's, you know, it takes a lot for him to become unattractive. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I guess we have to put it into the kind of counterculture context of the time, because the driving force behind the early 90s indie scene was a reaction against the aggressive, competitive, hyper-macho capitalism of the 1980s. And this is why I realized that so many films from that period either espouse a slacker lifestyle, uh, i.e. not conspicuously not achieving the opposite of what the 80s was about, or they tend to satirize or criticize high society. If you look at like an indie film like Metropolitan, it does that. Uh, it's very critical of wealth um, and you know capitalism so 
Leilana herself is a bit of a brat, uh, Winona Ryder's character. I, I mean, I get that she's she is seeking some sort of authenticity for her documentary, but she doesn't actually seem willing to put in any work into achieving it. Like she basically just throws all this footage together. And basically, Michael, the Ben Stiller character who's like works in TV, he takes that raw footage and says, right, I'll give this to a like, proper editor. They'll create something out of it, like a, a narrative out of it. And basically, she watches the results, hates it and instantly hates Michael for making an effort. And I was just thinking, well, at least he's done something. I mean, you've done nothing. You've just filmed your mates. Filmed a load of stuff. Yeah. yeah filmed your mates getting drunk on rooftops and stuff and talking about life. You've done nothing. So I don't know, maybe, perhaps she is more suited to Troy who's useless as well. I don't know whether maybe it's maybe Stiller, Ben Stiller just couldn't bring himself to make his character more unattractive. Uh, but that central factor, the fact that Leilana is drawn towards the guy that most of the audience will hate is a wound from which the film doesn't recover. Never heals. No, it's a pity because the cast is obviously good. Ride is very good. Uh, a hawk is fine, even though he's unlikable. And there's good support from Steve Zahn and Janine Garofalo. Apparently, That's Evan Dando. Apparently, Evan Dando makes an appearance, but I didn't notice him. Um, somewhere. I just saw the Dinosaur Junior, one of my favourite bands. This song "Turnip Farm" is on the soundtrack as well, which is fine. Yeah. Um, I. Well, how does it resolve itself? I mean, it's over twenty years old, so I guess we can do. But yeah, how does it... well. I, I, you can tell by my frustration where she ends <laughs> up. She basically just like, like Ben Stiller's character, the kind of yuppie type one. He's, I mean, they're both in their own way desperately trying to get her, get the girl, sort of thing. But he is way more, way less insistent and aggressive about it than uh, Ethan Hawke's character. And and basically, what happens is Ethan Hawke's character just buggers off. And just leaves her, dumps her, goes somewhere else, has um, a, this some tragic event happens, and then he comes back groveling, and she ends up with him. And it, yeah, it was just ridiculous. And <laughs> it, maybe it would have made sense at the time, but now it just, it, it's, it's very unsatisfying. As Antonio Banderas would say, it is baffling to me. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> The best line in film history. Um, so I'm not going to watch that because 90s, 90s slack films really like fly up my bum and lay eggs. So I'm not I'm not watching that. Uh, I did watch though Thirteen Sins, <laughs> which is a film. This is have you? Oh, can you hear me? Sorry, I can. Am I? Oh, sorry. I thought I'd gone then. Um, I did watch Thirteen Sins, which. You look at the poster for the film on Netflix, you'd think it stars Ron Pillman. Wrong! Wrong! I am in the film longer than Ron Pillman is. And I'm not in the film. Pruitt Taylor Vince is also in the film, but I'm in the film longer than he as well. <laughs> um, so 13 Sins. This is a film, right? Faye chucked it on, and I watched the entire film and thought, I think I've seen this before. It's so... Ah, oh, the film. So it stars... Um, I've forgotten the actor's name again. I haven't got any notes, which is a bit silly, but it stars a guy who eats, gets a phone call when he swats a fly. He's completely brassic. Um, he's just been fired from his job. He's got a younger um, sort of um, mentally impaired brother to look after. His dad's a violent, like sexist, racist in a nursing home that's going to have to move in with him. His wife is a total and utter screamer. And <laughs> He is he's just completely at the bottom. He's like drowning in debt 
and he swats a fly in his living room and he gets a phone call on his 90s flip phone obviously kills jeff goldblum no riveted like a fly you know like a oh. like the spiders eat them not not martin brundle um so he kills this fly and he, he, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't just stab jeff goldblum's character to desk death um so he, he kills this fly and he gets a phone call on his 90s flip phone that says oh if you get if you eat that fly it's the same guy who voices Woodhouse as well in um sorry woodhouse in um the archer tv show who sadly passed away a few years ago mm. um he says if you eat the fly i'll give you a thousand dollars so he eats the fly he gets a thousand dollars in his account and then it's like oh if you if you tell that kid your parents don't love it we'll give you ten thousand dollars you can see where this is going right mm-hmm. now it's this game that's being played and he's being watched by these unseen forces and being asked to do these more and more outlandish things. And at one point, it's at one point the character, um, the voice of basically Woodhouse on the phone, who's like narrating this whole thing says to him, there are 13 tasks. If you fail at any of them, all of the money's forfeit and will be taken from your bank account. And I, I would, if I was in this man's position, regardless of how desperate he is, you think this is going to get out of hand. Quite yes. frankly, this is going to, they're going to ask me. So you've got no like, idea what's going to be asked of you by yeah. number 13. And, and it really ramps up. These things are really dodgy, uh, get really dodgy really fast. I won't say what they are because they're basically the, that's the only fun thing in the film. And whilst it's like a decent horror and then it sort of expands upon itself and you realize there's, you know, more to it than you think. The problem is that it just, the initial conceit is fine up to a point. Uh, and it gets to a moment when you're kind of cringing watching the things he's been asked to do. And then at the end, it just gets ridiculous. But it kind of has to, because it has to go somewhere. But it's very by the numbers. And it, by the end of it, there's like reveal after reveal after reveal. And you think, oh, can't people just make a film that <laughs> doesn't rely on stupid twists in the last 30 seconds? So... The the actual final ending is quite nice, quite funny, and there are some. It's you kind of cringe as you watch some of the stuff he's having to do and say to people, mm. but it's very it's so forgettable that I genuinely forgot I watched it and I watched the entire film and it was only at the end I thought yeah I've seen that before actually yeah, and I'll probably do the same thing in another eight years or whatever yeah so thirteen sins um just a just a generic you know basically game of truth or dare effectively for ninety minutes. Yeah. I'm sure there have been other films. There is a film called Truth or Dare, in fact, isn't there? Yeah, and Would You Rather as well. Would, yeah, so it's, you, yeah. all these kind of things just get a lot jumbled in my mind because they're forgettable. I don't understand how you can mess up something like that, such a simple conceit. But And yet they manage it somehow, don't they? It's just the end. It's just, oh, actually, it's this and now this. And you think, I was quite happy. That. It doesn't yeah. need to be these stupid twists, yeah. Okay, well... Uh, just in the last five minutes, I'll quickly whiz through Parenthood then, uh, which is on Prime. Clearly, we watch this because we're new parents. Uh, yeah. Is it, it Disney? Is it Disney? Parenthood, isn't that the yeah. one with um, the, yeah, yeah, the two, the, oh, what's your name? Steve Martin? Yes, so I'm thinking of a different one. I'm thinking of yeah. that one with, um, uh, I've forgotten the name, it doesn't matter, but okay, sorry, carry on. You might be thinking of uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, maybe. I can't remember. Steve Martin was in that as well, I think. Anyway, <laughs> it is uh, from, I guess, I think, 88, 89. It's competently directed by Ron Howard, who is just a competent director. It's based on a script by 
the writers a writing partnership and they're responsible for a lot of comfort watching kind of movies like city slickers liar liar league of their own stuff like that um it focuses on three siblings and their respective family three grown-up siblings and their respective families steve martin is the dad of the regular soccer mom type household uh diane uh weist is a divorcee raising two troubled teenagers and there is harley jane kozak married to rick moranis a guy who's raising their toddler like they're going to Princeton like tomorrow. Um, there's a fourth sibling too, played by Tom Hulse. He arrives uh, Thanksgiving or some kind of uh, event with uh, this neglected, poor neglected son in tow. He's totally irresponsible, Tom Hulse's character. And then you've got Jason Robards plays the quite mean-spirited patriarch. And there are also smaller roles for Keanu Reeves, Martha Plimpton, and a very young Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is credited as Leaf in this film. Um, oh, okay. But it, I thought, is that another Phoenix brother? But then I recognised him and I thought, no, that's that's Joaquin, that is. Um, so anyway, each family has its own subplot and these plots kind of overlap at family gatherings, etc. The film covers a lot of different issues like depression, divorce, pornography and masturbation, teen marriage, parental obligation, childhood depression... And it does it does it with quite a lot of skill and subtlety and humour. It's kind of the template for the likes of like a TV series like Modern Family or something. Uh, it so it doesn't really have belly laughs as such. I wouldn't really call it comedy. Um, Isn't the cover of it very much selling it as a comedy though? Oh yeah, it's got Steve yeah, Martin like so. how, holding two toddlers by the ankles like you know zany way. He has got this kind of wacky childish energy. But the best moments are really some of the darkest. Uh, and the relationship between Dan Weiss' character and and her kids is really fractured and quite powerful. She was nominated for an Oscar and quite deservedly. Um, it's it, Overall, it is an intelligent and pretty insightful kind of slice of life film. Um, I remember liking it as a child, although I'm not sure why I would have ever liked it as a child, because probably a lot of it wouldn't have made sense. But anyway... It's very digestible. It has none of the kind of nasty verbal violence or histrionics or something like uh, August Os- Osage County, which is a really vicious family drama mm. uh, written by the same person who wrote Killer Joe. So you can imagine how vicious it is. <laughs> right. But yeah. this is much more gentle. And, and it ends with a really, really cool metaphor about fairground rides, which I think it's kind of and it's quite a nice way to end the film because it's it's kind of saying yes parenthood can be really annoying and awkward and difficult but actually it does open up the your human experience to a lot more things basically and i think that, which is quite a nice smart and not too condescending way of finishing it so it's a yeah it's it's a good film uh especially if yes <laughs> as a parent now I can. It does speak to me a bit more than perhaps it did before. Are you going to watch Fatherhood now with Patrick Swayze? No, no, I'm not. Oh. Okay, then. That, Fair enough. Who was who co-stars in that? Is it Whoopi Goldberg or something? I don't, I don't care. It's only Patrick Swayze I care about. Even when I'm watching other films, I'm always like looking actively looking around the back of my television for Patrick Swayze. <laughs> and even films that release after his death, so he cannot possibly be in them. I just put a picture of Patrick Swayze, I print it <laughs> off, and I just stick it in the corner of the screen. 
so occasionally someone it will align with someone's body and you can imagine he's there yeah. Watching porn is very odd in my house. <laughs> um, Patrick Sweezy coming out of that man's bum. <laughs> um, so this is part one of two because um, obviously you, you're going to fly off and be a dad now yeah. and watch fatherhood. <laughs> um, and yeah, two about a dozen, one and two. Yeah, and then the dirty dozen. Um, so yeah we'll we'll reconvene I guess in the next few days to finish this off and in the meantime I'll upload the last one magical so have you got um, film of the week oh god yeah well well no I think well I I think we should do it next week because I'll put this up as an episode so yeah because I've only got two left to do so alright okay I love you and I shall see you within 24 hours yes excellent see you tomorrow stay sexy Okay, bye.